are listening to Teacher Talk It, supporting teachers, parents and students worldwide. www.teachertalkit.co.uk Like, subscribe and follow to stay in the know. Make them feel good. So one of the things that um, the research and teaching has shown us is don't ever say that's brilliant or that's excellent or that's really good. Instead, say, I really like what you've done. That's taken hard work. Because what the literature shows is if you say that's excellent, you have completely removed all self-motivation from that child because they've already achieved excellence. Why why bother? (laughs) There's, There's nothing more to be done. So that's it. I'm done. We help teachers thrive and survive with classroom ideas, cutting edge school resources, and research-informed teacher training materials. You will also hear discussions on the policy, guidance, and research-based publications. This week, listen to Ross McGill, founder of Teacher Toolkit, interview Dr. Andrew Curran, a paediatric neurologist and speaker for Teacher CPD, focused on studying brain health and psycho-emotional health. In today's podcast, some of the things we'll be discussing are the importance of creating an emotional bond with each student, key components of the brain and the neurochemicals that optimise learning, and how teachers can create learning-enhancing relationships with their students. Okay, brilliant. And um, I'm just about to introduce Dr Andrew Curran. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, um, Andrew. Can you talk to us a little bit about your background? Can you talk to us about what you're doing now and why, why you do these sort of keynote speeches for teachers in particular? I'm a paediatric neurologist and spend a lot of time actually studying the brain in health rather than in disease because studying a disease, it has to be said, is terribly important but really not particularly complex or interesting. Um, while studying how the health work, how the brain works when it's healthy and well and functioning um, um, in an ordinary way is just fascinating. The last 30 years, I'm sure listeners are aware has been an extraordinary explosion in research into the brain uh, partly because a lot of funding got thrown at it but partly as well because the technology to allow us to look into living brains functioning and health has has expanded exponentially um, so now we can do techniques and explorations of the brain that simply didn't exist even 10 years ago so very exciting um, I got involved in learning in the brain uh, simply because I was very interested in psychoemotional health and I'd spent a lot of time studying uh, Freud and Jung and Joseph Campbell and um, um, Ken Wilber and all those people um, and realised that actually neurobiology was, this is about 25, 30 years ago, was starting to reach a point where we could start to map the theories of psychoemotional health onto the actual neurobiology that was being literally discovered as I was reading this work. So that has continued. Um, and what occurred, what I realized, of course, was that um, everything about who we are is because we've learned it. So we have our genetic potentials and they interact with our environmental experience. And that actually sculpts our brains into being the person you are sitting listening to this so um that was learning obviously um so i i spent a lot of time studying 
what we understood is the neurobiology of learning. Um, and that's an ongoing active process. You never stop doing that because there's always new data coming out that you can um, um, test your hypotheses and frameworks against. Um, and then, of course, um, um, attachment theory about five or six years ago started to become more current. Um, and I then finally <laughs> discovered Bowlby and then attachment theory. And, of course, attachment theory is exactly what I'd been learning about and thinking about for 30 years because it is about the learning of patterns of nerve cells in your brain, which makes you the person that you are. Um, and then the smaller aspect of that, um, which is still fascinating, is how does one learn in a classroom? How does one learn new data and stuff, which isn't necessarily about emotional survival or emotional health? Um, so about 20, 25 years ago, probably 25 years ago, I was very fortunate to start being invited to teachers' conferences and to schools and stuff to mm -hmm. share those ideas of the neurobiology of learning and how does understanding the neurobiology translate into optimizing the learning of each individual child in front of you. Um, and so, yeah, so I've been doing that for the last 20, 25 years. Um, and, yeah, it's just a privilege and joy and delight to be invited to come and talk to teachers and share with them where it's all got to really um, um, and the joy of neurobiology as well is it's not political it's not gender it's nothing it's just cells communicating with other cells to make connections to store data um, and it sort of bypasses if you like the whole pedagogy religions um, so it's not about saying this is the right way of doing it, or this is the right way of doing it. So mind mapping is the only way to do it, or backing, or or cognitive neuroscience, whatever it happens to be. It's just saying, well, no, that's the 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 outer skim. That's ways of presenting data. But what you have to do first is you have to optimize each individual brain in front of you, neurobiologically, so that when you do impart new knowledge to them, that brain will automatically pick it up and learn it. Brilliant. And it's it's I think it's amazing that you go up and down the country and you you talk to teachers about it because you must be pretty busy. So uh so that's uh that's brilliant. And also for us and you know to learn about the behavior of of especially the adolescents, the students in front of us, that's that's part yes. of it. So if we can get more information for it to plan and to create a better, you know, outcome or a better um experience for the students in front of us, that's the whole point. So that's what I really wanted to home in this evening. So I suppose the next the next sort of question and for the listeners is can you just talk us through briefly I suppose as much briefness as you can the components of the brain and then obviously if you then talk about what that is for an adolescence and how that affects a teacher that would be great so uh, yeah I mean that's two days so so um <laughs> Well, what, what we'll do is do a very simple sort of thumbnail sketch, which covers, I think, the, the, the underneath question you're asking there. So all education, all excellent teachers have one simple skill. Um, they are able to engage with each individual person in front of them so they automatically learn from them, learning by osmosis. And I'm sure everyone listening has had the experience or when they were in school uh, had the experience of a teacher who they simply went into their class they learned from them they've no idea how they learned from them but when they came out they went oh all that all that information is now sitting in my head and it works 
Um, and that's because um, at a neurobiological level between them, that individual and their teacher, there was a strong emotional bond mm-hmm. because the key component of the brain um, um, which optimizes learning is your emotional brain, which is a dispersed network across your brain, um, but a lot of it is centered in your temporal lobe um, um, and in the lower part of your thinking frontal lobe. Um, and those areas are under the control of dopamine. Dopamine secretion is 93% under control of the emotional brain. And dopamine is the key neurochemical involved in all learning. If you ain't got dopamine happening in the right concentration at the right time, learning won't occur. Mm -hmm. So the very first step, which all excellent teachers know, is make that strong emotional bond with the students based on respect, understanding, um, um, proper understanding, um, 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 and a sense of belonging with that person. Um, um, so that that optimizes your brain automatically and you'll optimally learn. When we get to adolescence, it's um, um, not any more or less important, but it slightly changes its emphasis because the job of adolescence is to break free from adult restriction. <laughs> and you're the adults there in the classroom. You know what that looks like learn. in the classroom, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you start from the principle, well, actually... What I have in my class are a group of individuals. If I spend the first month taking the effort to getting to know each and every one of them as an individual, and it doesn't honestly take very long, just a bit of one-to-one time with them, a bit of chat, um, 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 but done in a way that that teenager finds acceptable and respectful. Um, actually, by the end of that month or six weeks, if you've done that successfully, for the majority of people in your class, you've sorted behavior out because they are now with someone who respects and understands them as individuals. Mm -hmm. And what do we all do when we're with someone who respects us and understands the individual? We behave. We're in best behavior because because we we can be, because we feel relaxed, we're not stressed, or rather our stress has been reduced um, and we've got a reciprocal uh, caring relationship going. Um, And that is the single neurobiological challenge for all teachers and parents everywhere. And that is get it right for each individual um, and you will lead them forward because it is leadership into optimizing their learning abilities. So do when, when, they, when they move into adolescence, do they get more dopamine in their brain? And is that the cause for some of their poor judgments, for example? And so ad- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> adolescence during adolescence there is a surge in dopamine secretion now dopamine as we've said is the the chemical that optimizes learning um dopamine is also a feel-good chemical when you laugh you release dopamine all over your brain and that makes you feel good um but dopamine has a specific neurochemical function and that is it, it raises nerve cells to the point of firing but not quite firing um so if you have a surge in dopamine and this in that lesson starts usually about seven to nine years of age, so about a year, year and a half before you see physical changes of adolescence. Okay, yeah. Because um, the brain has to ready itself to produce the maturation in your testes and ovaries so you can then physically mature. So it's a stepwise process. So the brain matures the structures in it, which are in a year, year and a half, 
going to then get your gonads to mature so you then develop your physical characteristics. And that happens about a year, year and a half, two years before you see the physical change. But with that change in the brain comes this dopamine surge. The dopamine surge breaks free of the other chemical restraints in the brain which is a chemical called serotonin, and it makes the brain hyperexcited. Um, and as you quite rightly say, it produces the adolescent psychology of high-risk decisions with poor judgment. Um, but that is, these are all natural, evolved processes that have been around for millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And they are to do with, um, um, first of all, breaking the late child, early adolescent free from their parents to a degree, Mm-hmm. because they're starting to become difficult to work with and lots of parents typically want their children to stay children so they're easy uh, to manage well my three-year-old has become a teenager already is this there we go <laughs> started already yes the joys of having a phone when you're three that's what it is but oh, I, I won't tell phone. anyone I won't, I won't tell anyone that's what you i can see behind you but it's the uh <laughs> you got a phone no, no, no. I'm, I'm teasing to the audience. I'm only having a tease. There's no three-year-old with a phone. <laughs> She's in bed. Um, behind Libby. It's, they're in bed, apparently. Well, that's what I've been told. Them. The um, glass of cider works a trick on three-year-olds, I find. Just a little. Um... Thanks very much for that. Brilliant. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. <laughs> so adolescence is a neurobiological evolved process of breaking free. Adolescence only are able to communicate with other adolescents the same age. So 13-year-olds communicate with 13-year-olds, not 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds, and that persists all the way through. And that's because with them, they have, they're at pretty much exactly the same stage as the neurodevelopment, plus or minus six months. So they can have that mutual connected relationship and conversation. Um, um, that allows them to learn the rules of getting on socially with your peer group, because as far as evolution is concerned, they want you to breed with someone pretty much the same age as you, plus or minus a year. Um, um, so you come out of adolescence because of the dopamine surge. You've not only broken free from your parents, you've made high-risk decisions with poor judgment and you've survived. So you've learned how to handle peer relationships and um, 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 developing you know, boyfriends and girlfriends and all that sort of stuff. And 18 to 20, what nature wants you to then do is breed and have babies. Fortunately, our society has moved beyond that, a lot of it. Um, so we no longer have... I have a really good RSE programme at school at the moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We no longer have quite the same amount of teenage pregnancies as we used to have, which is a positive thing. Um, um, and in fact, there is, particularly in the higher socioeconomic groups, I'm sure you're all aware, a tendency now to not have children until you're over 30. Um, um, not either good or bad, because lots of 30-year-olds are very well stuck in their ways. And when the baby comes along, that's a real challenge. So anyway, adolescence, that's what adolescence is about neurobiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, that big release of dopamine as well does promote complex social learning in the frontal lobes. Um, and we use the frontal lobes for all our academic learning as well. So the NAS Centre and Language Centre and all those things sit in the frontal lobe. So we hijack an ancient evolutionary process, which is really just about emotional maturation and having babies um, to learn maths and geography and history and other stuff. Wow. It's absolutely fascinating. I I hope, well, I know that teachers listening to this up and down, wherever they are, 
it, it's so interesting because we what you're saying is exactly what we see in the classroom. Um, so I suppose okay. my, next, my next question is, um, can you talk to us in a little bit more detail about how children learn when they feel loved? Because you mentioned that um, on yeah. one of your talks that I was listening to. And I, I think that's a really interesting sort of uh, thing to discuss, if you can. No, sure. And it's the point I made earlier on in this chat that the emotional brain controls 93% of dopamine secretion in the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's dopamine, which is the critical neurochemical for um, the making and breaking of synapses. So synapses are the connections between nerves. When you learn anything successfully, it's because you've joined nerve cells together into networks, literally hardwired them together into networks. And those networks are called templates or patterns, and they are what you store data on. So if, if I say the word cat, everyone listening will have an image of cat, usually associated with emotional memories of cat, <laughs> either good or bad, depending whether they're allergic to them or have been scrabbed by one, um, um, or sadness because they've lost a cat or colors of cats or whatever it happens to be. But cat is a very emotive word for most humans, even though the word cat is obviously only three letters. And that's because by saying the word cat, I fired off a series of neural networks in your brain, um, some of which will simply carry the word cat, C-A-T, um, some of which will carry the shapes of a cat, some of which will carry what it's like looking at a cat's eyes, some will carry the emotionality of holding a cat and so on and so forth. So, so we, we were inclined to remember things across multiple areas of the brain to form a total picture. Um, um, the reason I use cat is because cat's emotive um, and a lot of our memories of cats will be associated with profound emotional experiences like touch and smell, um, which are the earliest things we start to store memory in. Um, because it's powerfully emotive, when you're working with a cat or being with a cat, a lot of the memories you generate have a very high dopamine creation around them because you're feeling good and you're with a cat and you love the cat and um, and that optimizes your learning of cat. So anyone who's a real cat lover out there will have extraordinary details stored in their brain around all the cats they've had or the cat they still have and, and will be able to recall little videos and experiences and stuff with their cats. Now, ideally, what we want to do is create that in the classroom as well. Um, um, we're not, and this we're not, is we're why, not saying that we're, we're bringing our cats. The students can bring their cats. No, 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 no. But the same, the same, we don't have to obviously create the same depth of a learning experience, yeah. but the same way of learning where it just happens automatically. Mm -hmm. now, when I was asking earlier on for people to remember or think about the teacher they had that they just learned from, they went into their class and they just learned from. Um, what I typically do when I'm doing a talk is get each of the teachers that I'm talking to to shut, call out words of how they felt when they were with that teacher. And they always, always, always use words like, um, I felt confident, they were good for my self-esteem, I felt engaged, I felt safe. And words like this, words which are related to being with a loving parent-type figure. Um, what I can tell all your listeners as I tell all those teachers is, well, that's why your learning was optimized with that teacher, because that teacher had optimized your neurobiological mechanisms 
particularly around dopamine, so that it just got down to a cellular level. You had no barriers to learning from that teacher because you felt secure, safe, engaged, all those words, fully focused. Um, that optimized your brain for learning. Um, and so you just learned what that teacher taught. And that is, at the end of the day, love. And it comes down to the oldest teaching um, um, paradigm in the book, which is if someone is with someone who understands them, then that's good for their self-esteem. If their self-esteem is good with that person, that's good for their self-confidence. If you're with someone where those three things are true, they understand you, they're good for your self-esteem and good for your self-confidence, then you are going to feel emotionally engaged with them. Fact. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to feel emotionally engaged with them. And if those four things are true, your learning will have been optimized. So the task and job for every single teacher and parent listening is how with integrity, honesty, and um, 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 true expression of self to an appropriate level, um, can you engage with each individual in your class um, so that they use those words about you, understand, engaged, safe, um, 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 confident, all those words, and then you will have optimised their learning. Amazing. And that, that was my, my next question was, what can teachers do to ensure they're giving the best kind of education to an adolescent? Yeah. So, that's, yeah. sorry, so that's the first part of it. Mm. And that's the bit that everybody can, can get right, because that's just about one-to-one relating to each individual child. And that's not difficult. Lots of teachers will say to me, well, but we haven't got time to do that. Yeah, you do. You've got them in a the class. <laughs> Just spend a couple of minutes with each pupil over the week in a one-to-one basis when they're working and, 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 and be there with them doing their work and make them feel good. So one of the things that um, the research and teaching has shown us is don't ever say, that's brilliant, or that's excellent, or that's really good. Instead, say, I really like what you've done. That's taken hard work. Because what the literature shows is if you say that's excellent, you have completely removed all self-motivation from that child. Because they've already achieved excellence. Why, why bother? <laughs> there's, there's nothing more to be done. So that's it. I'm done. Whilst if instead you say, I really like what you've done, maybe pick out a detail. I like how you've put that yellow on or that color there. You've worked hard to do that. That the literature absolutely shows that creates self-motivated learners. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And um, Tom Sherrington talks about that in a, in a different sort of way as well. That's that's really fascinating to hear as well. I suppose like to end to end this because we could talk for hours um, on it. All, but I just I just wanted to make it like really relevant so that anybody listening now can go and into school tomorrow into their you know in front of their students and they can make a difference they can put put into practice what we've been talking about and I think that's really provenant um I think for me because you're talking about it and it was a question as well what was your favorite memory or teacher at school what what if you've got that person in mind and then what absolutely no 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 absolutely and it's actually one of the joys of bringing that example up for teachers when I'm when I'm talking to them because I get get to remember my favourite teacher ever. So my favourite teacher ever was my biology teacher, um, who's called Bud McMullen. And that obviously wasn't his Christian. We all call him Bud McMullen, who was maybe five foot four, Bud. Um, very energetic guy, absolutely brilliant. Um, um, I was at school in Dublin, so he talked like this. 
Todd McBullen, he did. He was great. And he was absolutely brilliant. He was a highly intelligent man, but he could he could bring anything, no matter how complex, down to a readily understandable diagram with a short number of, of sentences to go with it. And I still, as, as a, a qualified doctor and a specialist as a pediatric neurologist, um, still have bits and pieces of his knowledge um, that have informed me on a daily basis looking after humans now. And he was teaching me, you know, the, 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 the anatomy of a worm and the anatomy of a locust and stuff like that. But it was just his way of constructing ideas and putting them together. Um, and the fact that I just had this great respect for this man. He was absolutely honest as day as long. He was my housemaster as well. I was at a boarding school and he was also the rugby coach. Um, um, and he just, he was just a really nice man and tremendous sense of humor. Didn't take nonsense, but also wasn't a stickler in any way. You know, he, he was absolutely aware of everybody's humanity. He's just a great guy. So anyway, there you go. Bud McMahon. Brilliant. Um, well, well done him for, for making you who you are today. Um, I think, I think for all teachers out there as well, it's, you know, it always comes back to this and the science has proven this, that it's always about the relationships. And, Absolutely. And that's, Absolutely. that's, that's, that's and, the point. And just to highlight cognitive neuroscience, which, of course, has had a lot of publicity recently, including a very detailed bit of research showing that an awful lot of it is not really quite what's being portrayed. Um, but cognitive neuroscience, if you, actually read, if you actually read the original papers, mm -hmm. um, which I've done, obviously, because I want to be aware of everything that's going on, all the original authors... <coughs> They don't know they're doing it, but they talk about emotional engagement. Um, and they all say, well, no, 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 you have to have this deep connection or other terms of that nature. That's just emotional engagement. So actually, every single one of them agrees that you start with connecting <laughs> on a one-to-one -one basis, and then everything else are just tools in a tool chest. Play with them, find the ones that suit you, find the ones that don't suit you and work with them, because then you'll grow. Um, and then bring those multiple tools to an environment where you already have one-to-one, -one, strong, loyal, um, respectful relationships with each individual human, and you will transform from good to average to excellent. Yeah, and I think I think if you're having a hard day as well, if you just sit and you think back to that one teacher that you really got on with at school and why you got on with them, it will, it will come back to it as well, wouldn't it? I think that helps a lot. The other thing as well, if you're having a hard day, and one of the kids in your class asks, how are you feeling today? Say, I'm really not feeling very well today, but it's wonderful to see you. Yeah, yeah. Because false faces is not how to teach children. You must take your integral, honest human to the job, and then you'll have a pile of fun. Brilliant. Love that. Well, thank you so, so much for giving up your, your time and for talking us no, through what probably could have taken years to explain, but it's it's absolutely brilliant and it's been incredibly interesting. So thank you so much. Not at all, Libby. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To continue the conversation, head over to www.teachertoolkit.co.uk and our social media channels to access all the links and resources mentioned on today's show. Why not share this with your colleagues and give them the gift of time, reduced workload and increased impact? Until the next time, before you look after your students, look after yourself. <laughs>